I'd like to address the world through the medium of the latest wonderful invention, so that my voice, like my great show, will reach future generations and be heard centuries after I have joined the great, and as I believe, happy majority. Welcome to Becoming Barnum, The Journey to Fame and Fortune, a podcast presented by the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and based on their award-winning blog series. Support for this project is presented to the Barnum Museum from the City of Bridgeport American Rescue Plan Act Funds, Peoples United, a division of M&T Bank, and the Connecticut Humanities and National Endowment for the Humanities as part of the Federal American Rescue Plan Act. The Barnum Museum has a special treasure in its collection, a 750-page copybook of letters written by Phineas Taylor Barnum when he was traveling in Europe in the 1840s, introducing his young protege, General Tom Thumb, to high society and royalty, as well as millions of ordinary people. Barnum's lively letters to friends, family members, and business associates reveal him more completely as a person at times struggling mightily to make the three-year tour a success, all the while directing the management of his American museum from afar. They also offer insights into Barnum as a husband, father, and nephew, and as a mentor to the child actor-entertainer whose popularity resulted in their meteoric rise to fame and fortune. In his mid-30s at the time, Barnum proved himself a tireless go-getter calculating risk-taker, and astute entrepreneur decades before his name was attracting crowds to the greatest show on earth. These letters offer a window into the hard-scrabble era of show business, revealing how Barnum went about acquiring, hiring, and commissioning attractions, and promoting his museum and the General Tom Thumb Tour in Europe. Join us as we travel back in time to learn through Barnum's own words about the real person behind the legendary P.T. Barnum. So welcome to the first episode of Becoming Barnum. Uh, we're going to do something a little bit different with this episode, which the podcast itself will normally be based off of, as the introduction says, off the blog posts by Adrienne St. Pierre, the curator of the Barnum Museum. But we thought we would talk to her first about what this copybook is, how the Barnum Museum acquired it, and uh, just answer some questions like that. So Adrienne, welcome to Becoming Barnum. Well, thank you very much, Will. Let me ask you first, what is so special about this copybook? Well, it's really extraordinary. It is a volume uh, filled with Barnum's letters from a very critical time in his life, his early career as a museum proprietor and a showman. The letters, which fill 750 pages, document the, these early years of his career, and specifically when he was abroad um, with General Tom Thumb, his young protege. So in addition to what we learn about Barnum's early career, we also learn about Charles Stratton. His stage name, of course, was General Tom Thumb. And, and this was the beginning of his career. He was a very young child. He was only about six years old when he went off to Europe with, with Barnum and, of course, with his parents and, and several other people. So there's just a wealth of um, information contained in all of these letters in the, in the copy book. Wow. And I guess the 
the biggest question maybe the, that a lot of people will have, what is a copybook? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, there's actually a label on it. Somebody wrote years ago, not originally at the time Barnum was filling this, but uh, somebody later wrote carbon copies from 1845. Well, it's not exactly what comes to mind with carbon paper. It's not that purpley paper that, you know, ends up with kind of a smudgy <laughs> lines. And But the copy books were, were an invention, you know, predate purple carbon paper and Xerox copies. And it was a way for people to make copies of the letters they wrote um, and preserve them within the binding of a book so that the letters didn't get lost. And, of course, this was very useful for businesses that needed to keep track of correspondence or for anyone who wrote lots of letters like P.T. Barnum did. Um, so these copybooks were kind of a patented item, something you would purchase from a stationer's shop. Um, they contain hundreds of really, really thin pages, sort of translucent paper. And the copying method involved using um, a special ink when you wrote your letter. That ink stayed wet slightly longer. And then when you finished your letter, you slipped it underneath one of the pages in the book, and then some kind of an oiled sheet was slipped on the top side of that book page to keep the imprint from transferring to other pages. And then the whole book was put into a screw press designed for this purpose, and the pressure of the press transferred that damp ink to the underside of the translucent page. So you could do a number of pages at a time as long as the ink was still moist. And it makes clear copies. But the disadvantages of the underside of the book page is the side with the print transfer, and that has the best contrast. So, uh, yeah. you know, if you go back to read the letters in a copy book, it helps to put a plain white sheet underneath the page you want to read in order to really see the words more easily. Did a lot of other people use copy books like this? Like, is there someone else that we could point to who's a, either a contemporary or even er earlier? I know... I think Thomas Jefferson used to copy his letters, but he probably didn't use a book like this, correct? Uh, yeah, it may not have been a book like like this particular one. I'm sure, like most things, there were different versions of copy books. I've read about different methods. The conservators at the Northeast Document Conservation Center explained to me a couple of different types of things. It's a little hard to understand. I wish I could have somebody actually demonstrate how it works. But yeah, I, I don't know specifically of individuals, you know, famous people who, who use them, but I'm sure there are lots of them in the National Archives and various other places. But, uh, you know, we're, we're lucky to have this massive volume. No joke. What kind of letters are in this book? Well, there are all kinds of letters, which is one of the things that make this copybook so fabulous as a source of information about P.T. Barnum. You don't just see one facet of who he was, um, you know, say as a businessman or showman. You also see him as a husband and father, a mentor and a friend, and as someone who was working extremely hard to become successful. Barnum corresponded with his immediate and extended family and with friends, colleagues, and business associates, and, and of course, people he didn't know. And there are some letters he wrote to famous people among his uh, various correspondents, like the artist uh, George Catlin and popular writer um, named Albert R. Smith. 
Um, and then among these letters, you, you have a clear sense of times when he was very troubled and sick with worry. And, and then times when he was on top of the world and he was confident and almost brash. And um, he really reveals himself um, in his long letters to Vortis Hitchcock, who was brought on to be the manager of the American Museum while Barnum was abroad, and to his showman friend, also a competitor in Boston, named Moses Kimball. And, uh, you know, you just get, uh, Barnum really spoke from the heart. He said what he needed to say. And, and so the letters to his manager, you know, direct him in, you know, gives him abundant instructions. Um, you know, I want you to do this, or here's what we need to do. But always telling Hitchcock that he, it was up to him to make the final decision. <laughs> so he was managing from abroad and he just had lots of ideas to share, but he wanted Hitchcock to know, well, you're, you're, you're in charge, so do as you think best. Yeah. And uh, where did, where did this book come from? And like, how did the museum acquire it? Oh, yeah. Well, the book was given to the museum by direct descendants of Barnum's fourth daughter, Pauline Seely. Um, and, and that couple, the Marshalls, have passed on now, but I, I'm sure they would have been thrilled to know that, that this copybook they gave us uh, became the basis for a blog series and, and now a podcast series. Yeah. And, and when, did they, when did the museum acquire this? Like, when did it come, come here? Well, compared to many items the museum has had for decades, some of some of things more than a century, this copybook is a relative newcomer. It was given to us in um, 2004, and it was certainly recognized as a potential goldmine of information about P.T. Barnum in the early years of his career, um, and especially valuable because these letters were unpublished. Right. But the pages are also very thin and fragile, and they could easily, you know, tear away from the binding. So this book of letters really couldn't be handled safely. So unfortunately, that meant for years it wasn't available to researchers, and um, the staff had only looked at a few of the letters because, you know, you just couldn't casually browse this thing. So it was safely stored and it was protected from dust and light. But I, I guess you could say this was a treasure that remained, you know, locked within the covers until about 2018. Oh, wow. And so given that it was so fragile, how were you able to actually go through and read these letters? I mean, that had to be pretty hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, fortunately, we now have a digital surrogate of the copybook, uh -huh. and it's online in the Connecticut Digital Archive. That's a digital repository that's hosted by the University of Connecticut. Hmm. So luckily, um, having that entire volume online meant that I could access it during the pandemic when I was working from home. Um, and, you know, for the museum, it had long been a priority to make this copybook accessible online because we knew of people who wanted to it, at least see what the letters were about and uh, perhaps use them for their research. Right. So getting this copybook digitized became the cornerstone of a much larger digitization project. And, and that was thanks to grants that we got from the National Endowment for the Humanities. 
So now this copy book, along with our other Barnum items and archival material owned by our neighbor, the Bridgeport History Center and the Public Library, they're all available in the P.T. Barnum Digital Collection hosted in by the Connecticut Digital Archive. And honestly, it's so much easier to read the digital surrogate than those actual pages. You know, you can zoom in, you can flip the pages, you know, <laughs> virtually yeah. at will. So this was a win-win between creating broader access. You know, anybody who has access to the internet can read this, um, ease of use, and then preserving the actual copybook from handling, which would inevitably have damaged it. Yeah, definitely. How long did it take you to get through uh, the whole thing? <laughs> you said it was like 700 pages. <laughs> yes, yeah, 750 pages. I really had no idea how long it would take when I started this in April of 2020. This was in the early weeks of the COVID shutdown. And, you know, with uninterrupted work time at home, I thought, well, this is an opportunity to, to read the letters. But I also realized I, I shouldn't just have the privilege of reading them that I needed to share them in some way. And I decided on doing a weekly blog post. Uh, so the most straightforward thing was to write about the letters as I went along, rather than, you know, compiling notes and then trying to write an article or essay when I was finished reading. Um, and I also thought that approach would make it more interesting for readers because, you know, they would be coming along with me on this journey through the book. And, you know, it's a process of learning along the way. And um, I, I just felt maybe readers uh, who would join me on this ride would, would um, have a good time. Uh, so I did not have a timetable for this <laughs> journey. I just had no clue how long it would take to get through the copy book. Um, doing a few letters at a time and writing each week. But as it turned out, it was a full year and a half, wow. 18 months journey. Wow. And, and how long, how many, how many years does the copy book cover for him? Uh, the copy book letters uh, start in July of 1845. Okay. And then they, they really end around May of 1846. There's a couple later, but you know, very minor ones. Right. So basically, um, not even a full year. Right. And we know he had a copy book prior to this one because the first page starts mid-letter. Oh, okay. Yeah. We don't know where that is, though. Right. Yeah, well, so if anybody, if anybody has a random book that looks like it might be important, let us know. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. The, the lost copy book. <laughs> absolutely. Um, so how did, the, how did the series get off the ground? Well, it just started actually as an eblast message to our um, our eblast subscribers, and I used some quotes from the first letter in the copy book because, you know, at that time in April of 2020, we just wanted to reach out to um, folks on our subscriber list. You know, everybody's like, "What do I do?" You know, nobody knew quite what to do under the circumstances. So it really just began as a, a friendly message to connect with people. And then after that, it evolved into the weekly post and eventually became a whole series with a total of 75 posts. 70, that's a lot. That, so, that's like, a lot. Did, did it ever get kind of boring? I mean, like, 
was it interesting the whole time or, or did you get to a point where you're like, okay, this is another one? Well, I never felt bored reading the letters, you know, um, they were always interesting. I, I would say after maybe 14, 15 months, I, I was anxious to, <laughs> to, to, you know, wrap it up. But no, the first few weeks of reading felt a little bit risky because I, you know, I just didn't know if these letters would really reveal storylines. Right. Um, and, you know, if they didn't, well, then the blog might not be all that interesting and we'd wrap it up quickly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but I figured, well, at least we'll find out finally what's in these letters, you know, what they say. Um, but I quickly realized Barnum's writing style was lively filled with curious expressions and really he was an honest correspondent who expressed his feelings pretty readily. His writing was not so formal that it seemed forced and overall I'd say his style is pretty accessible to modern readers. So it was never a chore to read his letters and I just kept going. And I was also curious and I was hoping other people would be too. And I guess that curiosity was important to sticking with the weekly tasks. There's, you know, you kind of have to create a discipline of right. reading and then writing about a certain group of letters each week. And, and then, of course, finding illustrations to go with them, um, which was another layer of it, but a lot of fun. Well, and, and I bet, too, that, you know, as you go through, you, you find things, you go, OK, I got to research. What is he talking about here? You know, kind of where did that I'm assuming you did some of that research as well. Oh, absolutely. I wanted to be able to provide uh, context. Um, yeah. It was really fun to take this kind of deep dive into Barnum's early career to, to see what made him tick and get a better sense of him as a person. Right. Um, and it also did help me learn more about the era that he lived in and the places he traveled to and some of the cultural differences at the time. So it became a journey about his journey. Right. <laughs> and uh, at times I did have to do a good bit of research in order to better understand that context in which he was writing, because there were some difficult topics like this artist, George Catlin, bringing uh, Native Americans, uh, Ojibwa and uh, Illinois peoples to Europe to have them perform. You know, they were curiosities to Europeans. Right. How much choice did they really have if they were being forced from their homelands, essentially, and left in poverty? How much choice then or agency did they have to say, oh, yes, you know, let's let's go to Europe? Uh, you know, you could say they were, you know, they were being exploited. Um, and. The sad thing, too, is that many of them did become ill and died because of exposure to European, you know, diseases that they had no immunity to. Um, so uh, Barnum was, you know, aiming to partner with Catlin and, you know, that just sort of grates like, oh, yeah. yeah. And another difficult topic was the issue of exhibiting people with notable physical differences, even tiny babies. Um, for example, Barnum desperately wanted to hire a French family who had infant girls that shared one body. Hmm. Um, this is a condition called partial twinning. And, you know, it's hard to understand attitudes of the time that sometimes seem callous. And especially because there were so many examples of Barnum as quite a tender-hearted person, you right. know, in other respects. So, you know, it, it sort of left me a little puzzled at times. But in this case, with this enterprise that he 
uh, wanted to pursue. The parents of these girls refused his offers, um, so he did not get his way. Um, but in the course of my research, I learned about attitudes towards people with those very, very distinct genetic abnormalities like partial twinning. And I learned that it was actually in France where scientists were pioneering in this field, trying to learn the causes. Hmm. And so they had a great interest in seeing infants or young people who were born with those kinds of challenges. And interestingly, this was a time period then there were still many people who believed that genetic abnormalities were caused by the mother's sin. Right. These were called monstrous births and they were uh, God's punishment. Hmm. So, you know, as we tend to recoil thinking, oh my goodness, exhibiting, you know, infants like this. But on the one hand, it was part of this process of scientists learning more about people you know, with genetic abnormalities. And what a contrast to the kind of yeah. primitive view of, of this being God's punishment. Right. So you mentioned earlier that this also follows Charles Stratton uh, or General Tom Thumb. So does he play a big role in this in this story in these set of the set of letters? Well, of course, he's the reason that Barnum planned this multi-year tour in Europe that ran from 1844 to eight, early 1847. And there are a fair number of letters that concern Charles Stratton and his parents. Um, Barnum had actually agreed to partner with Charles's father, Sherwood Stratton, and was very often irritated <laughs> with, with him. Um, uh, but, you know, since Barnum was often traveling as the advance man, especially when they were in France, Barnum would be uh, several days or a week or more ahead of Charles and his parents and that whole entourage, uh, they weren't always together. Um, and hence, that's why there are some letters from Barnum to the father. Um, I also found it interesting that, you know, Charles was, he was so young, he was between eight or six, excuse me, between six and nine on, you know, this, this um, journey in Europe. And the pace of travel and the number of performances it just seems like it would have been absolutely grueling, especially when you think right, about yeah. what it took to travel in those days. But, you know, he did remarkably well. He was a child with apparently a very strong constitution. He didn't seem to get sick much at all. And he seemed to love it on the whole. And from the sound of things in the letters, um, Barnum was really a mentor and, and very much of a father figure. Uh, to him. Uh, and I said, you know, this is also where you see him as a tender hearted person, in part because he didn't think much of Charles's father. Right. And um, Barnum was concerned that Charles be properly educated, for instance. And then there are the fun things about Charles, like, you know, he didn't really want to have to learn the lines of a new play that was <laughs> right. written for him in French. I mean, he just kind of balked at that. So... Um, there were there were some reminders like to his tutor, like, are you are you getting him? You know, are you teaching him these lines? And there are even a couple of little sketches in the copy book where it seems that Charles might have outlined his hands huh. and a little picture of a man in profile who has kind of curly hair and okay 
could be Barnum. <laughs> could be Barnum. I mean, remember, this is like a six or seven year old uh, yeah. is drawing, but that's that's delightful. Was there anything you left out of the letters when you were going through them? Um, well, I did, as a matter of fact. Um, the copy book uh, contains a couple dozen letters, maybe, that Barnum wrote to the New York Atlas newspaper. Um, he had decided he was going to be a foreign correspondent. You know, Barnum was the, um, the ultimate multitasker. He would be doing so many things at once. So he decided that he would um, write letters back to the editors and describe, you know, uh, like a travelogue, describe things that he, he saw. And, and um, so I, I did reference a couple of them. And in fact, uh, it was one of those letters that I quoted from in that very first e-blast I did. But I decided really not to include them um, because in those letters, Barnum's writing for an audience. Right. You know, it's he knows that these letters are going to be, um, you know, put in print in the Atlas newspaper. And so they weren't written in the way that letters to, you know, an individual, uh, you know, were written. So I, I just felt that that was a different animal kind of thing and decided to kind of skirt them for the most part. Um, I mean, Barnum was very conscious of creating, you know, a public image. And I, I wanted not to, you know, tap into that so much. Right. Um, I just don't think the blog series would have worked as well if I had tried to deal with both the public and private um, letters. And then, interestingly, towards the end of the copy book, um, there were a couple of letters to um, correspondence in which Barnum said he was ashamed of what he had written in those oh, letters to the Atlas, and he wished he could have done better. Hmm. And I would say so too. There were some. <laughs> <laughs> there were some who made some very derogatory remarks about you know people in the provincial areas of France. You know how primitive they seemed, and you know I, you know they were rather unkind remarks. <laughs> um, yeah. So bit. they weren't all like that, but um, I guess you know it was something that he thought oh, would get people's attention in the newspaper, and he wrote that mm -hmm. way. Or maybe something that he thought you know was true at the time and then traveling later he was like well no i wasn't being fair you know? yeah yeah know. hard to say but who knows with barnum right <laughs> <laughs> uh was there anything else that you left out well there's certainly more material for others to explore uh, some of these letters are so chock full that i just had to decide you know i have mined enough from mm -hmm. this letter i need to move on you know to the next or the next group of letters so there is even more to tease out of these letters. And I, and I do remember one letter that I, I pretty much put aside because it was extremely, it was an extremely repetitive letter about religion that Barnum was writing to his uncle, Allenson Taylor. These two men, well, Barnum really loved his uncle, but at the same time, they vehemently disagreed on many matters, including religion. Um, and Barnum, you know, tried to convince his uncle that they could find common ground. Well, that particular letter just seemed so tedious and repetitive. And I didn't really want to do anything with that one unless I could find something that would help to give more context to that. But 
In other blog posts, I did talk about Barnum's universalist views um, and how they differed from his uncle's. His, his uncle was very much cut from the cloth of the Congregational Church, which was very puritanical at that time. And Barnum had, um, had left that church as a young man. He, he sought a religion that he felt was more uplifting and hopeful. So he became a universalist. Yeah, actually, I, it's interesting. I, I was at a church um, a couple of years ago in Providence, Rhode Island, that had a picture of him in, I think, downstairs somewhere in the office because he had been there and it mm -hmm. had been like a, something that he helped found. Oh, wow. Which I thought was interesting. It yeah. was like, oh, that's that's P.T. Barnum. Yeah. <laughs> well, he remembered the, the Universalist in his will. <laughs> for oh, interesting. Sure. Yes, it was very, his faith was very important to him. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Um so the, you said the copybook is digitized. What's happened to the, the actual book? Where is that now? Well, of course, we would never get rid of it. Well, it's obviously. a permanent part of our collection and, and something that we highly valued. Um, it is safely stored in a custom-made book box so that it is really quite protected from, from dust and light. And, um, and you have to realize, you know, because some people would say, well, you've digitized it, why do you need it anymore? But it, it is both an artifact and a document. And um, you can't fully understand it as an artifact by seeing only the digitized pages online. Um, we don't expect to have it out much, but it can be brought out when need be. Um, and so, you know, honestly, things like that have certain magic, you know, having been a personal and highly valued possession of P.T. Barnum himself. I mean, that's that makes it something really, really special. Yeah. I mean, it's very special. As you said, it does not seem that there's another one that has survived. And that has survived. Yeah. But, you know, to know that he traveled with this volume everywhere he went in that time period. Right. Um, so, you know, it it's fascinating for that reason too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, was there anything you feel you learned about PT as a, as a person, you know, from reading through these letters? I learned far more about his personality and his traits than I expected to. Um, as I mentioned, he was very open in the way he expressed himself. Um, his writing isn't you know, stilted the way you might say, oh, you know, this is Victorian times, you know, this is very dry. But no, he, he just really spoke from the heart. Um, I would characterize him as someone with a lively mind hmm. um, and having a very energetic and driven personality. These, these traits, I mean, they were known, obviously. They right, definitely right. come through in the letters. Um, Perhaps you'd assume that his drive was kind of a succeed at all costs attitude, but um, he had a strong faith in God, not a punitive God, but a forgiving God. And he embraced a hopeful kind of optimistic view of humankind that was not common in New England at the time. And um, I think that's, you know, he chose to become a universalist um, beca because he had this this positive feeling. Um, right. And all this was really an essential part of his character and his outlook on life from the time he was a young man until the, the day he died. 
Um, the letters make clear that he cared very deeply about his wife and children, and he missed them terribly. They, they did come over to Europe at one point, so he enjoyed their company for a few months, and then they returned to Bridgeport. Um, they were renting a home in Bridgeport at that time. But he missed them so much to the point that the homesickness made him ill, physically ill. He was also very intent on his daughters having the best education possible and that they apply themselves to their education. <laughs> yes, he had a, a strong worth work ethic and, and he expected that of other people. He had no tolerance for laziness. Hmm. So he wasn't thinking, oh, okay, I've made all this money. I can send my daughters to finishing schools and I'll let someone else worry about what they learn. Right. He, no, he was all over it, making sure they would grow to become smart, capable young women. Oh, he was so absolutely determined that Caroline learned to speak French fluently. He, he made sure she went to a school where, in fact, they had to read and speak French all day long. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I think this was partly because he felt his own deficiency in terms of a formal education. You know, he left school when he was young and it was only, you know, the local school in Bethel, Connecticut. So he wanted his daughters to be um, to be well educated. Um, and, you know, he, he wanted them also to have drive and pluck. I think he, he really valued that. Um, there was another deeply personal revelation, um, and that was Barnum's fear of losing his wife um, to childbirth. Um, he and, and his wife, Charity, had actually lost their third daughter. It was only about two when she died. At the time, Barnum was in England. He'd only been there for a couple of months, and then... Their, their third daughter, um, Frances, uh, died. While he was in France, he learned that his wife um, was pregnant. At, I mean, she was actually very close to term at the time. He <laughs> figured it out because nobody said the word pregnant, you know, in a letter. And she was very frightened. I mean, she had had three other babies, but her, I think it was a sister, sister-in-law had had recently passed due right, to right. childbirth. So she was very scared and Barnum himself was, you know, he might lose his wife, he might lose the, they might lose the baby. Death was not an abstraction to him and he just, he really wondered how he could possibly bear another loss if that were to happen. Um, he also had his museum manager, Fortis Hitchcock, <laughs> buy a book about childbirth. Oh, and give it to a charity, <laughs> hoping that would help to ease her, her fears, too. I thought that he's, was quite interesting. He's not quite a micromanager, but he's close. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that was thoughtful gesture. <laughs> so I really saw a, a, quite a range of emotions in these letters. You know, and, and like I said, there were times he was very troubled and worried and times when he was confident and brash but i think overall he was a genuinely kind person he really liked people there were a few times when he revealed a certain callousness or, or harshness but i perhaps that was just more common in his day yeah maybe i would bet that many people assume barnum was greedy you know yeah wanted money like, oh definitely um and of course 
growing up without much money often makes people want to have lots of money when they grow up. But these letters um, made it uh, pretty clear um, and explicitly so that he was more interested in success for its own sake. Hmm. Um, money was less of an object. It was a measure of success for sure, but having a lot of money was not necessarily his object. Um, so he does describe his attitude towards money in some of the letters. Um, and also he does confess to, you know, early on, oh, wanting to make a little more, a little right, more, right. okay, a little more, and then I'll be satisfied and I'll return to the United States. So there's no question he was kind of lured by the idea of making more money. Again, you know, as a, as a measure of success, but I think superseding that, it was really all about being very competitive and an inveterate risk taker. I mean, he, he yeah. loved challenges, which meant sometimes, you know, he, he did very well and sometimes he failed. Um, another surprising right. thing was that he was very generous in loaning money to people um, whom he thought had gotten a raw deal despite their hard work. And I think that he remembers back to his uncle, Allenson Taylor, who helped him out when he got right, into right. a pickle. Um, and, you know, he was very grateful that his, his uncle said, you know, well, here's the money you need to come, you know, do what you need to do with it. Um, so he genuinely wanted to give people a helping hand as long as they were honest and hardworking. Um, he really despised dishonesty and, and sleaziness, you know, in people. Um, and that's interesting to me, too, because we often hear, oh, well, he was a charlatan or, yeah, you know, uh, the Fiji mermaid. He was yeah, trying to yeah, fake people. You but, know, and, you know, that was the stuff he that was that was what entertainment and showmanship right. was about then. And he had he had standards for, you know, what honest, you know, what situations you, you better be upfront and honest and, and straightforward. Um, so you really understand that, I think, through these letters, these nuances of his, of his personality. And I found it absolutely fascinating and rewarding. And I think that these letters having been written when he was in his mid-30s, he was more willing to share himself hmm. at that age than, right. you know, when you're older, well, you've kind of figured things out or things are not so you know, novel to you in life. But in his mid-30s, you know, it, it was the world before him. And um, so we learn a lot more about him and his attitudes than we might if these had been letters from, say, 20 years later. Yeah, well, and that's why the series is called Becoming Barnum, because he's sort of figuring out who he is that's as exactly we go through. Right. That's exactly right. He's not quite the guy that we read about in the autobiography. Yeah, and, you know? and like most of us, he was an evolving person over his life. Right. And that's what makes him so interesting, too. Yeah. What age? So in 1840, he would have been he would have been in his 30s at this point. Yes, yes. He was born in 1810. The letters are from the mid 1840s, so he's about 35, 36, somewhere yeah. in there. Wow, that's so he was a pretty young guy. Yeah, he was a pretty young really guy. Think about it. Yeah, going, going through something that I think you know we take for granted that we can fly to Europe and take a tour or do whatever we want, but at that point, you know, that was a long way, and 
he was there for a long time, right? He was there for a couple of years. Yeah, he was he was there for three years. He did make wow. a well, couple of trips back, I think, during that time. And at, at that time, the travel is interesting, you know, the transatlantic travel, because there were both sailing vessels and steam vessels. Okay. Right. And uh, when he was returning in um, May of 1846, his wife, Charity, had just given birth two months before, March 1st. Okay. Um, he he chose to go by a steamship because that was only a about a two week journey, okay. as opposed to a few weeks on a sailing right, vessel. Right. And uh, so that the actual you know reading about those choices that he was making and contacting the the, the captain to make sure he got a good cabin, you know all that sort of stuff. <laughs> like yeah, rich people. <laughs> yeah, you gotta be comfortable. <laughs> looking, looking for the luxury liner, right? Yep, yep. Um, but yeah, that's an interesting time period for the inventions too. Well, thank you for sitting down with us and explaining some about this, this series that we're going to go into in the next episode. It's going to be an interesting journey, I think, for everybody. Thank you. And I, I certainly hope uh, people enjoy it as much as I did. Um, yeah. Thank you for talking with me about the copy book. It's just an amazing um, document or documents with all of those letters and to uh, be able to do this deep dive into P.T. Barnum, who is right. still so famous. He died yeah. in 1891, and yet people, you know. I a movie and, a couple years ago. Yeah, <laughs> and, and we get visitors from around the world. I mean, his name, you know, continues on, although people tend to think, oh, he's the circus guy, right? Right. But these letters tell us about his first big career as a museum proprietor and a showman. So, um I, I thank you, and um, I hope the re I hope the listeners um, really enjoy uh, the podcast. Me too. I'm sure that they will. Thanks, Adrian. Thanks for listening to this episode of Becoming Barnum: The Journey to Fame and Fortune. This podcast was produced by the Barnum Museum. All episodes are based on the blog series Barnum's Letters from Abroad by Adrian St. Pierre, curator of the Barnum Museum. Editing and sound design are by Rui Pino, and narration by William Saris. Kathleen Marr is our executive director, and John Swing is our chief operations officer. Please visit our website at www.barnum-museum.org to learn more about the museum. Don't forget to connect with us on social media and visit the Barnum Museum's YouTube channel for behind-the-scenes presentations of our fascinating collections and more stories about the legendary showman. Please tune in next time as we continue our adventures in Europe with P.T. Barnum.